Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it is going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out into the investing universe. The best way to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at Focus Compound. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can go to focuscompound.com, click that invest with us tab, and you'll get some information on how you can do exactly that. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about a current potential merger arbitrage situation. And that is one that we've spoken about both publicly on the podcast and privately ourselves, uh, Spirit Airlines. And we could also you know, hit on airlines as well, talk about the overall state of that. But you know, in the last podcast, we were talking about uh, Buffett and different investments that he's been part of, this idea of having the money mind. And I'm curious, Jeff. So the announcement date was over a year ago, July 28th. 2022 uh, cash deal, uh, JetBlue would acquire Spirit Airlines for $7.6 billion. Uh, the stock currently trades at $16.55. The deal price, uh, this has listed as $31. It breaks down the uh, analyzed return if you were to invest in it here today. Uh, what's cool about Inside Arbitrage which uh, is a great website to track all of this, and you could get the affiliate link in the description, is there's updates, and you could follow along okay. with everything that's going on uh, in this M&A um, situation. And you could actually get the spread as well, which I really like, merger spread changes. So it just you know tells you and shows you how mm. it's changed over time. Uh, so this has the spread uh, being at 91%. So just curious, Jeff, uh, does this follow or fall under the money mind situation? Is this one that you would be interested yeah. in? Um, mm -hmm. Here we go. I mean, when's it supposed to close? The expected closing date is uh, 6-30-2024. Here we are today, 87% uh, uh, is the return right here. The spread is is huge. Um, so mm -hmm. kind of curious how you're thinking about this, Jeff, is this a M&A situation that you would be interested in? Um, yeah, so we don't own the stock. Uh, it is an M&A situation that I'd be interested in. My feeling on Spirit and on Albertsons is that it's very hard to own any other, uh, supermarket or any other airline, you know, U.S., in your portfolio instead of these. It's very hard to justify why you wouldn't own the one that has the bid on it, uh, because the price... Uh, is so close to the price of other, um, in terms of multiples and stuff, of others in the peer group, uh, which assumes the deal doesn't go through, basically. I mean, we, we can't say, we'd say that there's some assumption that there's some chance the deal will go through. But what I mean by that is if the deal doesn't go through, you've created the stock, right? You bought it at this price. Um, that is not that different from other ones that you would own. Now, if you don't want to own any airline or any supermarket, that's a different story, right? Because there's a high chance the deal falls apart and then you're stuck owning 
stocking industry you didn't want to be in. But if you're saying, why are you owning Kroger instead of Albertsons or something like that? I mean, Village is cheaper. There are specific reasons why it would be. But other than that, Albertsons is just about as cheap as anything, you know. And it has private equity type ownership and stuff that probably wants to sell it and get out. Um, so that's kind of falls in the same sort of category as Spirit, which had two different um, companies trying to buy it. And, you know, uh, once a company is as seriously in play as that, it's not impossible that it doesn't get sold to anybody eventually, but it becomes unlikely, uh, especially in the United States and with the laws in the United States and how boards work and everything. Once you've got a few people trying to buy you and actually making offers that, or, you know, um, it's hard to get back to a situation where you could argue that your goal is not to sell the company, but to run it profitably and reject outside offers. So, um, it, it, you know, it makes it likely that it gets bought unless someone tries to block it. Uh, both of these are because they're going to be uh, attempted to be blocked by the government. But of course, if the company fights it, um, then it goes to a court case. It goes to a trial and that would determine the outcome. Um, for a long time now, there haven't been a lot of fights that actually go to court. So generally people avoid deals where they, um, the administration the, the, um, tries to block them, right? But there's a bigger issue of the question of like how likely is a deal to go through if, if they actually pursue it all the way to the end of trying to, to make it go through. And I've seen some things written up in some cases. Uh, this, I think the Spear and Albertsons ones are pretty similar. So I'll mention those two together where people talk about like the breakup fee and, but if the breakup fee is because of a court ruling that goes against them, then they wouldn't get the breakup fee. So don't really count on the breakup fee. That's true to a point, but then that means that you have an incentive to, um, spend a lot on legal stuff, both like to divest yourself of things, to try to comply with things, to pay lawyers a lot, sort of up to some number that's lower than the breakup fee, but that's quite high. Um, if you know that you have to pay a breakup fee under all scenarios under which you can't back off the deal because the, the breakup fee is not just, oh, if we don't immediately get regulatory approval or something, but that if it is paid only in the, that you can only not pay it in a case in which you pursued the deal to the end and failed because of a court ruling or something that puts a lot of incentive on you to make sure that you try to win the case. Um, instead, sometimes the regulatory thing is an out for companies, right? Because the regulators express any question about it and you're like, well, you know, sometimes you have cold feet and you mm -hmm. think, okay, I can get out of this deal and it's not going to cost me that much. From like a probabilistic Kelly criterion perspective, how would you think about how much you would put of your portfolio in a situation like this, right? Like, and especially compare yeah. the difference in spread between Albertsons right. and Spirit. So the spread on Albertsons is at 15%. And as we said, the spread on Spirit is 91%. So like from that backdrop, and let's say you wanted to invest in these situations, play these situations, trade these situations, whatever you want to call it, how would you structure that position? And both of these have options, right? So do you dabble in yes. an options market? Right. I mean, what's the best way to go about doing that? Yeah, so I think... Um... 
I think it was Stephen Gamble. He has a uh, blog, like Real Worth Stocks, something like that. Um, I think he did one for, was it Albertsons, um, where he broke down like the Kelly Criterion type thing of how much you oh, should well. bet and stuff. It's complicated because if you, you always have this issue of the opportunity cost, right? So when you're doing any of these calculations, you have the issue of the opportunity cost. And this is where I would, I mean, the, the truth is what you should do. <laughs> this is not investment advice. And what should not, you do? What you should do and not what people are going to do and stuff. But um, if you have a full portfolio in U.S. stocks, big stocks, uh, stocks around the world, whatever, but you basically own a lot of equity, whatever kind of company, institution, individual you are, um, it, you probably only want to participate in arbitrage deals that you think will get a better return than the market. And you probably only want to do it um, by shorting the market. And using that to fund your position. So you short the market and uh, like the S&P is fine. Um, but you short it and then you buy um, stock in the thing that you want. Now, some people try to get more clever than that and short things that are specific to the industries that they're in and everything. But that gets iffy because there are certain potential advantages in the industry to the mergers and why the offers are being made is because they're cheap and stuff. So you should be careful doing that because it's very possible that why there are offers that companies are willing to fight out against regulatory stuff in supermarkets and airlines is that consolidation, those things could be good. And certainly that prices are more attractive. So maybe you want to be short other things that are, you know, not that, um, assuming you don't short things to fund it, but like Buffett would do that. Right. So it'd be like a hundred percent, in stocks in his partnership days and then 20 or 25 percent borrow now he didn't short until the end of his fund um but uh didn't short a, a basket of like the market or something but late last few years of his fund he apparently shorted a basket similar to like s&p s&p didn't exist exactly he that. created his own. certainly there was no index things yeah yeah i think what he did is just tell a college you know i'll short your whole portfolio um so which might have been even better because it might have been the bluest of blue chips and stuff. But um, so absent that, the thing that would make sense is opportunity cost, right? Now, I think my memory from the Stephen Gamble one is that he uses long-term return in stocks. Now, I have a problem with that because what matters is the forward return that you're expecting. And if you're thinking probabilistically about the deal, if we really apply the same ideas probabilistically to the stock market, the, the bad news is the expected return is nothing. Let's just be honest about that. At the prices that it's at today... Um, if we really say what are the chances and how big could the drops be and whatever, the number that we come out when we weight things and stuff is basically nothing to slightly negative. Um, that's whether you use like a Schiller approach or you go to Guru Focus, which tries to make all those estimates of different things, or you use, um, uh, the, um, was it GMO, I guess, uh, it's that one thing of Jeremy Grantham's firm, whatever that one is. Um, uh, those estimates would be, you know, really not good. Um, doesn't mean it's going to happen. The The most likely scenario is that a stock market is up for a year, even when on a uh, weighted basis of how much you're expected to lose and everything, it would be negative. You still would have a more likely than 50-50 chance that you'll actually end the year up. It's just that there's some chance you'll end the year you know, down 30% or something, and there's not a lot of chance it'll be up 30%. So it doesn't work out that well. But for that reason, you probably don't want to use the stock market return. Certainly, I don't think there's any case to be made that the money market return is lower than the expected return in stocks. 
So I would use the return in the money market or the highest point in the yield curve or whatever, because the highest point in the yield curve is quite short right now. I wouldn't necessarily use the highest point in the yield curve if there was a big duration aspect to it because these deals are expected to close fairly soon, whereas a 20-year bond wouldn't be. But the the highest point in the curve is really, really early on. It's a few months. So um, if we assume that, then I think you're comparing what do I get by buying a treasury bill that is about the same sort of um, length of time as these deals. Or, which in this case is basically like a money market. I mean, there's not a huge difference between those. So can you explain to people that may not be familiar why you would short and use that to fund the purchase? Okay, so um, there's a few reasons for why I would do that. Um, one is, let's assume you're 100% invested. You may not be 100% invested, close to 100% invested, but it's possible that you are. Selling long-term stocks that you own, taking in, paying t- uh, taxes on that, whatever, um, and switching into arbitrage things, Sometimes improves your risk-adjusted returns, but isn't necessarily going to be real great for your returns in general. So you've got a bit of a problem there if you're not using borrowed money. It's not terrible. Depends on the deals. Uh, Buffett Buffett estimated that the on-life returns that he did through the 80s or something from the time he invested with Berkshire stuff, I think was in the 20 to 30% range or something, or, or maybe closer to 30, whereas Graham's had been in the 20, Graham Newman. Uh, same range for me. I mean, I, very net-net similar, I would say, in terms of the deals in which I participated. But I participated in very, very few deals. Um, you can look at Clark Street Value, which is a blog that breaks down things more on very small deals and things. Isn't all merger arbitrage by any stretch of the imagination. But that gives you some idea on very, very small things, how much money you can make and stuff. So it's possible. These are very, very big deals. Um, and they have big spreads on them and stuff. Uh, but yeah, the, I, I think... The advantages are you would reduce your exposure to, uh, there's a few advantages. One, if something's expected to have almost no return, which the stock market is, then why do you want to be heavily exposed to it? Maybe you can make some case for being slightly exposed to it. But you do run into this problem of like, okay, why own 100% stocks instead of 50% stocks and 50% gold? Or 100% stocks... Uh, you know, instead of 30% stocks, 30% gold, 30% cash. Because if any of those things drop, then you can rebalance by putting the other things into them. Like if you have no reason to believe that cash or gold or whatever is more or less attractive than stocks because stocks are so expensive, you start to run into that problem. The reason why you're normally like 100% in stocks is because they have a much higher expected return than these other things we're talking about. When that goes away, then I have no problem with diversification. You know, I'm only against diversification when it's diversifying away from higher return things into lower um, if you're saying it's the same sort of thing, then diversify very widely, right? If your returns are, if all, if everything's expected to return 0%, then buy all, you know, buy everything. Um, you know, so that's one reason. Um, so I think the average person would benefit more from that. These are event driven things, which should be a little less related to the overall market. So I think that by doing both of those things within reason, like if it was 20% or less. So uh, probably someone listening to this would be like, I'm not going to put more than 5% into an individual deal, I think. So if that was the case and you were going to do two deals then you and you're 100% long stocks, which I don't know that you are, but if you were 100% long stocks, all of which you could margin and stuff, um, then being short the market 10% so that you could buy each of these, you're not even really 5% in each, you know, because you're now at 110% of 100%. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you're reducing your overall risk that what's happening to most people is that they're heavily, heavily risking everything on the market. 
And this moves that into somewhat risking things on an events. Not totally 100% because your downside is still kind of exposed to the market. Uh, if these deals fall apart and the market falls apart, the multiples on Albertsons and, and Spear and stuff will be poor. Um, so, and then your outright short part of it. So you have outright short and then you have an uncorrelated thing if you want to do that. So that's why you would do that. The other way to do it is just to use it as an alternative to cash. And that's how I would think about it is as an alternative to cash. You know, Buffett talked about how um, Graham and stuff, and back then they they called them Jewish T-bills, right? Because instead of the money that you would put in treasury bills, you would do arbitrage operations. Um, and I think that's the way that makes sense. So when you talk about the Kelly criterion, I actually personally think you have to input uh, the um, short-term treasury return in this. Um, Buffett would do that anyway, you know, but normally you could look at the stock market return, but I don't think that's appropriate because I don't think that we should expect stocks in the future return anything like stocks did in the past. So it's just, you know, a problem that way. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's an issue. Let me put it this way. Let's say you were looking at bonds and bonds were yielding like they were a few years ago, say, you know, 3% or something instead of like six or whatever their average was in the past. I don't think people would input to expect the return in bonds that you've always had. But yet that's what they're doing with stocks, right? They're inputting, oh, stocks are more expensive than in the past, but I'm going to get the same return in them as in the past. You have to adjust for the price. Same thing with cash, right? So the interest rates are higher on cash, I would use that. So your opportunity cost is 5 or 6% or something right now. What situation do you like more? Spirit or Albertsons? The spreads are completely different. Is one more certain than the other? And that's why the spreads are so different? Um... I don't know about that. Uh, I think they're both fairly cheap. So Spirit, I think, if you think in terms of the last, I don't know, five to ten years before COVID, and you take that together, and you tax at today's rates, and you do all that kind of stuff, um, Without any synergies and stuff, you're not really paying more than like 13 times that number. And that's a nominal number. Today's sales are higher now. So, and that's not like I'm not doing EBITDA and stuff. I'm saying like it's like a 13 times PE or something, right? Um, that kind of thing. Uh, now, it has no margins and stuff now. You know, since COVID, a lot of airlines haven't really been, had only recently been making money or something. And Spirit's not really making money at all. Uh, so, that's the issue there spirit has a particular strategy and everything that's more different your uh, ass and gas yeah and uh, albertson's doesn't albertson's and kroger are very similar now um so there might be more downside risk in the long run in spirit than there is in uh, albertson's but this is like a cigar butt situation right this is a shorter term not as correlated to the market, event-driven thing. So are you going to hold yes. it for the longer term? So do you think differently about that? Yeah, so I I, I do. I think of it that way. Um, I think the most important thing to figure out generally is how good, how durable, how desirable is this asset. And then to have faith that value will happen. Um, you know, we think of the stock market as being efficient and, and 
figuring that stuff out in a really powerful way and stuff. And maybe a small group of people bidding for something won't. Uh, but I think you can put a lot of faith in that normally. Um, so I think one thing to do in merger situations as compared to how most people look at it, the angle that maybe is more the money-making angle is trying to really figure out if the asset is really good or really bad. Um, both because that protects your downside in the case in which it's um, the deals fall apart and stuff. Uh, because also there'll be other bids, you know, if deals fall apart, other people will start circling all the time and stuff. And, um, and because then if you end up owning the stock, it's fine. You know, Hunter Douglas, every deal fell apart three, four, five times where the company tried, where the mansion tried to take it private every time the stock ended up at new highs by the next time they tried a deal. So like you try to take it private at 40, doesn't work a few years later, you try to take it private at 60 at 80, you know, and you keep going, trying to squeeze out the shareholders and it doesn't work and it doesn't work. And then finally you sell it for much, much higher. Um, you want that kind of situation other than the reverse one. You don't want the ones where tried to sell itself, fell apart, now can never get back towards that price um, because it was a pretty frothy time in that industry or something, you know? Um, so I would care about that, actually. I think that that's a pretty good um, thing to consider uh, that, that people don't. In my experience... That's one of them. That, that's probably the most important thing. If you buy the stock yourself and it's in play, then it's a good bet, really, regardless of what happens other ways. Especially because people can become obsessed with the other stuff, right? So, like the regulatory stuff, um, which is really important to it as a short term thing, and then it ends up a lot in the hands of people doing arbitrage and stuff, might distort the price over time. I don't know that it has because you have to compare it to other things, but it can hold down the price of Spirit, for instance, even if it should be rising at some point. The deal's dragged down for so long and everyone's focused on that, that at some point you could say, oh, there's more value or there's less value here over time because people aren't really analyzing that. Um, so on the other hand, like Albertsons, I was disappointed with the Albertsons-Kroger deal. They are doing a deal where they're going to um, take a certain number of stores where there's a lot of overlap and they're going to put them into sell them to another company outright instead of doing a spinoff. I was really hoping for the spinoff because that was one that we would have taken a very hard look at um, because of the size, so, the size, the inefficiency of it. I mean, the best thing you can have is something being spun out or sold off or whatever for antitrust reasons. If if someone's selling something to meet antitrust reasons, you want to be the buyer of whatever assets yeah. those are. Um, and cause you can fit them into lots of other companies in the area in in the same industry and stuff. Um, but I know that that didn't interest Wall Street people and stuff, and that may have been part of the decision the company made is that everyone was kind of writing down a zero for that, that you were going to possibly get this distribution that they were going to consider valueless, you know. So um, that's probably why they didn't want to do that. Um, yeah, but these will be unusual in that they'll, like, go to court cases and the government wants to block them and everything. Um, and they're two very sensitive topics politically. Uh, both super heavily unionized, right? And then both directly involve customers and everything. I mean, when there's a story about this, you should go on some website that has um, like comments and stuff, you know? I mean, any story, anywhere. Not like the finance things that we follow and stuff. But, well, I mean, like Yahoo Finance is fine because it's not a very serious finance thing. But if you go someplace like that and read the comments, uh, you know, 
you can see that everyone is not going to comment. They're not going to be saying, oh, what's the spread on this deal? Can I make money? Whatever is the stock thing. It's just going to be comments about how horrible um, it would be if these two things merged, uh, the airlines things, but also um, also with Kroger and Albertsons, because in some places, you know, they, um, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of other choices. Like where I am, for instance, now, where I used to be, there's a ton of choices in um, the Dallas area. But where I am now, this will severely limit choices for a full size. I mean, they're the only two really true supermarkets. Your other choices will be your Walmart. I mean, I guess there's an Aldi and stuff, but your Walmarts and your Targets and stuff, which are much more limited and a whole different business and everything. So your true supermarkets, your, those are the only ones that there are. Um, but then, of course, those could end up being sold off to someone else. Like, you know, it could be one of the stores in places like that that are sold off to someone else. So, um, I, you know, I think these are seriously, seriously in play. So I think that's the other thing to keep in mind is if it falls apart and everything, the question of what happens after that. Um, there was a bank deal that fell apart back at the time when there was all the banking turmoil and stuff. It had been planned for a very long time merger. That's less clear on deals like that because it's harder to do the bank ones, and I'm not as sure. Um, this is, you know, like I said, private equity will try to get rid of the business somehow, and if they don't, they'll, like, lever it up and pay special dividends or something. They're not going to, like, just pile cash in the business. And um, with airlines, maybe the government will never let airlines merge and stuff, you know, and then you have a problem. But other than that... Um, you're one of the biggest airlines that might be allowed to merge with something, you know, nothing much bigger than you will be allowed to merge with anything. So you're highly desirable that way. Um, you know, it's kind of like for years, uh, T-Mobile or Sprint or, you know, which one was it going to be or were they going to merge together and stuff was the one thing that you knew maybe someone could buy, maybe someone could merge them together and whatever. Um, yeah. So, but the, how these work out in court and stuff, you can go talk to lawyers and stuff about their opinions about that. Um, I think we've mentioned before, you know, there's an office depot, you know, the the Staples Office Depot one, the DirecTV Dish one. So there, there's things that have been blocked when it might not seem obvious to people that they would be blocked because of how they measure things in terms of the overlap of market share, you know, for customers. Um, in those cases, you know, rural satellite customers wouldn't have any choice and, um, business customers wouldn't have any choice, right? Because they're so high concentration. So in this one, there might be specific routes and specific towns where there wouldn't be any choice. And so they'll have a problem with that. So which situation do you like more? Um, I don't have a strong opinion on that which given the difference in spreads and things that you can see means that I like the uh, like aspects other than price better on the Albertsons deal as compared to spirit. Mm -hmm. I just love the spread in, in terms spirit. of time and price. It's huge. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to look into these cases to read for yourself. Inside arbitrage breaks it down, but read for yourself how the payments are coming. So um, spreads, the spirit deal, you got regular monthly payments up to a point, but then those are counted against the full deal. The Albertsons deal, like we said, was uh, you got a dividend and you got a um, 
there was planned the spinoff thing, which would then be taken out of the price, and then that was gotten rid of now that they've sold that off Kroger. Um, so those are just things, and you can read that in their explanations of it. It's important to read the proxy statements or whatever original ones that you have and to go to someplace like Inside Arbitrage to follow it because the companies usually, I mean, some of them are, these these two are talking a little bit about it, but uh, they almost try to pretend that the deals aren't happening and stuff while it's happening. We have no comment. It's ongoing. Um, you know, so they do these long earnings calls and won't talk about the most important thing to their company, which is whether these deals happen or not and how they happen. Instead, they just talk about earnings and stuff. Even the things being acquired talk about it, you know, as if they aren't about to disappear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's cool because you can track and get email alerts and have it all be in one place. So it sounds like, to me, you'd be a little bit more interested in the Albertsons thing. Do you like the no, business no, better? I, I mean, you're not... It, uh, I wouldn't be more... I, yeah, I wouldn't be more interested in Alberts uh, at the same. At the, if I expected the same annualized return in both, probably I'd be more interested in the Albertsons one. Yeah. Um. Eh. You like the business more. I mean, a- airlines are cheap compared to other things, but I don't know. People might be a little too the the market in general might be a little pessimistic on supermarkets. And a little, not exactly optimistic on airlines, but there's more possible negative stuff with airlines than with supermarkets compared to how people are thinking. Probably certainly, let's comp you know supermarkets like I just mentioned, like Target and Wal. I mean, like Target and Walmart, and, and we just saw Dollar General come. You know, Dollar General fell this huge amount and stuff, and it only is getting towards prices that the best supermarkets sell for. So, um, yeah. Non-supermarket retail is quite expensive versus supermarket retail. So make of that what you will, but it's interesting. Um, you know, so... It's down a good amount. Uh, well, that was a pricey stock. Yeah. You know, Dollar General was a Walmart-type PE and stuff. That may be their biggest drop. I don't know. You've got the stock there. I don't think they've ever come down that much in their history. Like that's like a fifty percent drop or something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, down from it's a pretty stable stock. One twenty. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, we talked about Dollar General on the uh, on the podcast, and we tried to be polite about it. it. Was before the the quarter, polite about it and stuff, but saying you know, look the the customer that they have is hurting really bad and stuff, and so they really had this bubble during COVID, and now that's deflating. Um. So if you look at like the overview, we can see the revenue growth. The revenue growth really ramped up during COVID, you know, and now in real terms, it's negative because I think they were at like 0% basically or something, you know, in terms of same store sales, which given how much inflation there is, is actually negative. Um, So not that there's a ton of inflation, the things they're doing, because, you know, they're more like we talk about the CPI flexible versus sticky it's the, f- the flexible part is more what Dollar General is in somewhat um, and or a mix of the two, let's say at least. And uh, that part isn't inflating so much, but the other part's inflating quite a bit. So their same source deals in real terms dropped by several percent, I'd say, um, which isn't good because at some point the market will go, wait, are you opening like 5% a year new stores or something while your same store sales are coming down? Why are you doing that? Stop doing that. Um, and the whole idea for the stock 
long term has been that they're always going to open these new stores and stuff, which only makes sense when you have a nice same store sales thing. So it's the same as restaurants or any of that. Um, but they still have much better future overall as compared to other supermarkets and things because they have this potential to create a lot of value. Dollar General is also heavily indebted and stuff, you know, like they don't talk about it that way, but they constantly use quite a lot of debt. They actually don't turn a huge amount of it into free cash flow relative to debt compared to some of the companies we talk about. So you are bordering a little bit more on if things go wrong with the company, people start to take that into account and be like, oh, they won't, like they stopped doing buybacks. And historically, they've done a lot of buybacks and they stopped now when their stock got cheap uh, because they have to stop because they need to not exceed a certain amount in terms of their debt and stuff. Um, so... But if you look at that, right, EV to EBITDA and Dollar General, uh, let's check Walmart and Target, for instance. Those are kind of the other ones that I would think of as Walmart, especially, as being in this kind of. So Walmart's thing. 14. And let's see, EV to EBITDA yeah. and then Target teaches it. What do we got? Uh, TGT, EV to EBITDA, nine times. Yeah. So Dollar General, we said, was what, eight after, you know, it's making headlines is like a really bad situation. Mm. Um, so like everyone's flipped on the stock versus what it was before. So at a kind of really negative sentiment point, and this is probably some of the lowest multiples it's ever had and stuff. Whereas if we go with like check Kroger, um, we have Kroger, even because we'll five times. Mm -hmm. But it also went up um, during COVID and stuff, but how big, you know, how big was that increase versus like Walmart and Dollar General and everything? Um, it, it's a lot, but it's not totally out of character versus Dollar General or something that was totally out of character. It was like over the counter markets where he said, you know, the meme stuff and whatever is like the stock shouldn't grow 20% a year or something in sales. So same thing with Dollar General where it had this freak thing that happened for, for two years or something. Um, but yeah, these other ones are cheaper that way. And also, um, there's some miscalculation stuff on like Kroger. So for instance, it's doing EV to EBITDA. My memory is Dollar General doesn't own any of their stores. I know that historically they mostly lease. Kroger owns quite a bit of their own stores. They don't own all of them. Um, it's a mix of like they have debt and they have um, uh, to finance the the owned part of it. Uh, but it is just worth mentioning that because some of them have that with um different companies i mean some of the companies uh, let's see uh, in supermarkets i guess weiss is public definitely ingles is still public maybe um the biggest ones aren't public unfortunately right so public's not public uh the, the public can't own it there are there are shares but you can't get them uh, HB's family owned. You can't have it. Um, so those are the some of the biggest. Um, there is a European company that owns in the U.S. Um, you don't have a lot of choices left uh, in in supermarkets to buy into public companies. Um, so the, obviously, the average returns and stuff in supermarkets is way lower. Um, you can look at Albertsons. Albertsons. The, the interesting thing about them, of course, is that the results were quite bad a few years ago and they've improved a lot and um that happened close to and during covid and so there could be some concerns about whether it should return to levels that it was at before um and that might worry people yeah it's at three so. times ebitda 
on a TTM basis. Yeah, but what was operating income before? Let's say let's say twenty nineteen or something. Six hundred twenty two million, and now it's two point one bill. And what's yeah? What's the EV on it? Thirteen point six billion. Yeah. So that's the fear, yeah. right? It's like, okay. So like, you know, adjusted for taxes and stuff, what is that? You're you're paying 25, 30 times earnings for a supermarket if that was to go back to where it was before. But it's it's um quite cheap versus gross profit, which is probably how you would look at it if you were an acquirer or something. Um yeah, you know, because if you look, it's not like uh, what was gross profit in 2019? 16.8 billion and now it's 21.7. See, so yeah, that's, you know, that's why you look at gross profit, right? Because if they can make the improvements there or you can acquire and make the improvements, you can make a big change. If you, if you look at EBITDA or operating or something, you can fall into these things where you're like, oh, it quadrupled on barely any increase in revenue. But someone had projections inside the company that were going to quadruple it. Like, you know, that was why you do a deal where you think that you can improve it that way. Um yeah, not a look, it's not a terrific company. Doesn't uh not the best run, doesn't own the best assets and whatever, but it's trying to improve things and other people would probably want to acquire it. It's really big. Um so that is kind of a downside on Albertsons versus Spirit. I mean, that's what makes it attractive as a deal, but like its profitability and stuff isn't very high for this has, let's see, we have, uh, okay, it doesn't really have return on assets exactly. It has return on invested capital here. For recent years, it's quite low. 2.2 2 you know? is the 10-year median, but, I mean, past couple of years, it's been, it was 5.4 in 2021, 10.3 in 2022, and then uh, 9.4 in 2023 so far. But, like, if we like if we compare it to Village, for instance, to put that in, um they have very different financial structures and stuff, but it's not particularly strong in terms of different numbers versus village. It's fairly comparable. If you look at a lot of the different things, um, I don't think that's returns when you really adjust for cash. And this is making a mistake with the adjustments for village. Um, is all that accurate? I think more of it is actually cash in the case of village. Like it generates more cash relative to the quality of earnings at Albertsons. Probably gross numbers are pretty similar though that probably favors Albertsons because my memory is Albertsons does sell quite a bit of fuel. Village sells none, um, which affects your gross profit quite a bit. But Village has much, obviously, to offset that, Village must have much higher turns. Um, you know, the, the Albertsons locations aren't as good as Village, right? But um, that's the thing that might surprise people is that Albertsons and Kroger, and this is where it gets into the, the court stuff, the overlap is not that great. Do you have... Um, Let's see. I was going to say this. Oh, here we go. This is good. Clark Street Value on September 8th wrote up the, the Albertsons merger, not the, not the spirit. But because um, I was surprised, you know, because we've talked a little bit about what things are covered on Clark Street Value and what aren't. There's a great amount of uh, um, pretty obscure deals and things. But one that isn't really talked about is those. And so um, the, I, I thought that was interesting. And um, this is just a thing that basically talks about that the um, the author of Clark Street Value bought into the merger ARB. So that's why the write-up is happening. But it's a pretty simple write-up, and it does lay out from their presentation 
uh, the map of the two companies. And you can see on the map of the two companies that there's very, very little overlap uh, compared to what people might think. So you'll notice a few things, right? So like I said, I live in North Texas and stuff now. And so you can actually see on the map where I must live because you need to find someplace where there's both orange and blue in Texas. So that really narrows it, right? Um, so apparently they'll unload those stores. You also notice some really interesting patterns, right? In terms of where they have nothing, right? Like this is, you look at this and you're like, hmm, could I buy? So for instance, they have nothing, either company in the whole South of Texas. Why? Because HEB has total market share in the South of Texas. And now HEB is coming North, like they're in McKinney now and stuff. So they're coming to the places that these two companies are. And that's obviously a big concern. They have nothing, either one of them in Florida. Florida. Why? Because Publix, Publix is in Florida. Mm -hmm. Look at where Wegmans is, right? Okay. And then also the company that they're selling to, I believe, controls the Grand Union name and stuff like that. Those would be up in that gap that you see up there. But if you notice, so Albertsons in this one is the, the yellow or the gold or whatever, and Kroger's the blue. I've mentioned before, Kroger is probably better run, but doesn't have as many ideal locations in some things. It lacks locations, as you can see, on the coasts in some very high-density areas um, up there in the northeast. Because like people would ask, well, doesn't you know how does Village compete with Kroger or something? Well, it doesn't because the stores have never been next to each other. Um, if you look at the blue there, there's no Village store that's ever been where a Kroger store is. Now there will be because they're, you know, they have Albertsons in those areas. Um, now, because the way the map works, it's kind of deceptive because you think like, well, Albertsons must have a strong position in the Northeast or something. It doesn't really because there's so much high population density. Same as when you look over to Southern California, you think, oh, these two companies must be really big there. Not necessarily because if you look at like Ohio or something, there's, you know, uh, there's what, 50% more people or something living in Ohio than in New Jersey. There's obviously a lot more stores that they have there in Ohio than they do in New Jersey. If you could, you know, if it was possible to look that way, California is even more extreme that way. Um, and then of course you can see they have nothing in the true Midwest parts of it. There's whole parts of the States where they have nothing. Right. Um, and that's cause there's other chains that are there. Uh, so the ones that they're selling to is mostly in the gaps that you see there where you see it in like, um, the spots in um, uh, New York and uh, Pennsylvania, especially, you know, west of Philadelphia and stuff, and, and New York north of um, New York City. Uh, and then you also see gaps we talked about before, Dollar General, right? Dollar General and Walmart. Notice they've got nothing either one of these companies in Oklahoma, basically. Like there's huge gaps in the Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri areas, which is core Dollar General territory in that Dollar General's number two or competing with Walmart. Either there is no Walmart really close by or they're one and two with Walmart. Um, so a lot of these companies put out things where they say like we're number one or number two. A lot of times their obsession is we're one of the top two in each of these markets. But you'll notice that there's a different company that they're competing against in each of them. And there's whole sections where they're not in there at all. A lot of people put attention on the overall market share, but I don't think that's important and I would assume in a trial things that that stuff won't be considered important. There's some huge political risks though, right? Because I mentioned to you the book, uh, the new financial capitalists about KKR, right? So that goes into it. And that's like almost an authorized corporate biography of KKR. I don't think technically that's exactly what it's called and stuff, but they gave them access to their archives and whatever. It's pretty much a sponsored type book. It's actually really interesting compared to, 
the more critical books written around the same time about KKR that I read too that didn't have as much access to some of the stuff and it's nice reading them together. Um, but although they don't say it, you get the feeling they made a lot of money on um, a supermarket deal that they did at the time, right? But they probably regret it, like overall. Um, that it changed things a lot for the image of private equity and stuff. Because one of the things that they ended up doing is closing all of the supermarkets in a specific region, like around a, a certain city. So an entire um, district, right? Um, and because they couldn't work out an agreement with the union on it. So they're competing with non-union stores. Their union store um, couldn't come to an agreement. We'll just close all of them down there. Um, and so that kind of thing is, uh, uh, why you don't get involved in this industry. And people know a lot about airlines being super, um, unionized and stuff, but here we have, um, supermarkets also super unionized and very important locally to these. Um, so we'll see, but I think from like a legal perspective in theory, the way that, you know, antitrust stuff works in the United States, it's important that they don't have much overlap you're the there's really no importance to how national it is i think politically they have a problem and some of that is their own fault um kroger especially talked about data stuff they shouldn't have done that don't talk about data you know if you knew you were going to buy another one and want government approval for that you shouldn't be saying you know that a big part of it is that we want to have more data down. on everyone in America and stuff, and they try to put it in a more polite way, but that's what they mean. Mm -hmm. uh, supermarkets have a ton of data, as do Walmart and Target and stuff, um, but they can predict all sorts of things and stuff, and that's really important. And uh, this nationally, that's one of the few things that you would get benefits to scale and stuff from. Mm -hmm. And then Kroger is more vertically integrated with how it supplies some things. Um, whether that's like bakery or, or dairy or something. Um, so you could have some benefits to that too, but I don't know. They're pretty limited because as we saw, there's not a huge amount of, of overlap town by town and even entire States. So I think, you know, the fact that they're, what their market share is nationally, isn't really that important. Like, um, uh, like you said, um, uh, say right. HEB or something, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, it depends on how regional you are, but if you tried to sell stores in Texas to HEB or something that like, would merge HEB with those companies, um, there's more potential that even though that doesn't nationally present as much of a problem, it would present a problem in Texas, right? Um, because you're merging something that already has a very large share. Now, if they do it by like regions of the state, which is normally how they would do it, not the entire state or something, but there's more of a argument that could be there, you know, a problem of merging some things together. Um, so even though those would be small deals, like I said, with ShopRite and something, imagine you could merge, you can't because it's a co-op and stuff, but if you could merge with, uh, if Albertson said we're going to merge with ShopRite or something, it's not a big deal nationally, but it would be a big deal in like the New Jersey area and might present antitrust problems. So then you'd have to like get rid of something. Um, so... As you can see, not a ton of overlap, and the overlap area is just really just in one particular region of the country. So, it you know it'll be interesting, but I think politically both of these are tough industries. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, we'll continue to follow it. 
Uh, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If you want to uh, try out Inside Arbitrage yourself, uh, click the description. Uh, you'll see a link which is linked to us. And that will let them know that you heard about them uh, from Focus Compounding, which helps everything that we do here on the podcast. I thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, reach out to me at Andrew at FocusedCompounding.com. Be sure to hit that like and subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us here today. And we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.